Turn to Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Mark 11, 27. We're going to be reading through chapter 12, verse 12. Jesus is in Jerusalem, finally. The book of Mark is in two sections. And in the first section, he's ministering in Galilee, hanging out, healing people, uh, teaching. And then he moves towards Jerusalem. He's moving towards his death. And... Um, He's coming in with quite an entrance. He turns over tables in the temple. He comes in as a king riding on a donkey. Um, and then he, he keeps going out of Jerusalem and coming back in and making these different entrances. This is his third time to come back in, what we're going to read about today. And here he is to stay all the way to his crucifixion and then resurrection. So let's read this together. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and they sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and killed and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. A few months ago, we were uh, eating dinner at NYPD Pizza. You guys been to that place before? couple of locations here. So NYPD, obviously a play off of the New York Police Department, um, but it's New York Pizza Department. And um, so they have, FYI, they have free kids, you know, Wednesdays and Sundays. At least they did last time I was here. So um, that's why we were there. And while we're, we ordered our food, and it's, it's good, decent pizza, uh, we're waiting for it to, to be prepared. And I look across uh, and see this huge sign on the wall. And uh, the sign is just massively painted on there, and it says, Only New York water makes New York pizza. 
So, now I'd read about this before, that there's, there's unique water in New York City. That's why the bagels are famous, that's why the pizza is famous, because the bread has a special crunch because of the water that makes it. So the claim was, only New York water makes New York pizza. And so then I'm thinking, like, this is pretty cool. I'm guessing that they ship in water from New York or something crazy like that. I don't, like, I don't know how logistically that works or how cost-wise it works, but if only New York water makes New York pizza, then surely if they would make a claim like that, then they must use actual New York water. That's the big sign. Only New York water makes New York pizza. But beneath it, there was a smaller type that described their process of making pizza. And it turns out, when you read the small print, that they use local water, <laughs> and they use a special filtration system that, quote, tricks the water into being New York water. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not New York water. Now, this frustrated me. <laughs> and maybe it says something about me that it, that it frustrates me. I'm not sure. And I like the pizza there. Pizza's great. Um, Phoenix water is great. I mean, it's not great, but it's, it's okay, right? And I'm used to it, but I don't have a moral problem with Phoenix water nor New York-style pizza, nor do I have a problem with uh, New York-style pizza made with Phoenix water. What I had a problem with is the claim, right? The claim. Only New York water makes New York pizza. And then when you look in the fine print, you see that that authoritative claim is misplaced, at least from my perspective. And so the authorities, I put that in quotation, scare quotes this morning, the authorities, what is the source of the authorities of the day, are coming to Jesus in today's passage about his claim to authority. They're fine generally with Jesus. I mean, They've plotted to kill him a couple of times. When he was in Galilee and he was ministering among people and healing people, he's kind of this prophetic figure. It was okay. Like they didn't like him. They didn't like how many people were following him. Uh, but they kind of kept him at arm's length. But now he's coming into their house. He's coming into Jerusalem, first of all. And how has he come into Jerusalem? He came in very clearly saying, I am the king. And had people lay out cloaks before him and palm branches. And then the first order of business when he came in was to turn over the tables in the temple and say this is not the way that it should be. And so now he's walking around, at the start of this passage, he's walking in the temple like he owns the place. And the authorities of the day come to him and say, by what authority are you doing these things? Why are you claiming to be the king? There is an implicit claim, and even an explicit claim, that Jesus believes that he's the king. He's acting like the king, but remember what he said when he went to get the donkey to, to ride in? He said, the Lord has need of it. And that had to have spread like wildfire. The Lord is here. This is the king of the temple. And while they were somewhat comfortable with him being at arm's length, now that he's in their house, the authorities want to know where do you get this claim? And they want to take him down. Explain yourself. And I think we're the same. I mean, I think that, that most of us, 
I don't know if we've really wrestled with the fact, the authoritative claims that Jesus makes. He makes very authoritative claims about who he is and how you should build your life on him. And just like the pizza, you know, I think most of us are pretty cool with, with, with Jesus. There are very few people, I'm guessing, in here who hate Jesus. There are folks who do, and they write books and they hate Jesus. But that's kind of like a handful of people. Most people are good with Jesus. But are we good with the claims that he makes? Are we good with the fine print when we get down to what it means to actually follow this king? Are we good with his authority over our lives? Or do we want to say to him, by what authority? By what authority do you require this of me? Do you say this about sexuality? Do you say this about truth and exclusivity? Do you say any number of things we might say, by what authority do you say that to me? Jesus does make this claim, and we're going to talk about whether we follow this claim or not. So here's the claim from Jesus. Jesus alone has the authority to require us to build our entire lives on him. That's the way that he's been acting. That's what he shows in this passage. When the authorities come to him, he asserts his authority and he says, I will do it my way. I am the chief cornerstone on which everything else is built. Jesus alone has the authority to require us to build our entire lives on him. That is a huge claim. Imagine that thrown up on the wall this morning. That that's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. What's the fine print, we may wonder? Is it really true that he has this authority? Is it an exclusive authority? Where he is the only Lord. That's a claim that we can accept or we can reject. I want to ask three questions this morning to help us understand where we are in relation to that claim. Three questions for personal reflection as we walk through this passage passage is organized with Jesus first giving us a riddle, then giving us a parable. And it's, both of them speak to this idea of are we, are we willing to accept his claim of authority? So here's the first question. What is your starting point? What is your starting point? Philosophically speaking, what is your starting point? Jesus is in the temple, verse 27. He's walking around, and then the chief priests, verse 27, and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now these are the authorities. This is what you would call the Sanhedrin. This is the greatest authority. All, all three groups are coming together. They're united on this. They want to know what is this authority. And they ask him this question, by what authority are you doing these things? And then what they're doing with asking that question is they believe that they're laying a trap for Jesus. And it's the very trap that he then puts them in, into. And so it's kind of like in Proverbs where you see, you know, may those who lay a trap be themselves fall into the trap. This is a living example of that because they tried to trap Jesus. How? They're saying, by what authority do you do this? They're coming as the authority. So the trap obviously is this. If he says, I'm doing it by your authority, if I, I'm doing it by the authority of the elders and the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, then they can say, we didn't grant that authority to you. Sorry. But if he says, standing in the temple, my authority comes from God directly, then what more proof do they need? What more reason? They can arrest him on the spot. He's claiming to be God and to, have, to be the, 
the recipient of God's authority in the temple where they are. And so Jesus does not answer their question. He, in fact, leads them into a trap. And by doing so, he asserts his authority. He's like, I'm not going to answer your question. You don't have the right to ask me the question unless you answer my question first. And so here's what he says. I will ask you one question, verse 29. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? This is John the Baptist. He's basically asking, did John have the authority of God or was it the authority of man? And this puts them in a conundrum, which is spelled out for us. They discuss together and they say, well, if it's from heaven, then he's going to say, why didn't you listen to him? And if it's from man, uh, then they're going to become very unpopular with the people because everybody loves John. And so at the end of the day, they answer, we don't know. We don't know. But the thing is, they answer, we don't know, not because they don't know. They aren't willing to engage in the tension. Why? Because at the end of the day, their starting point is not the truth. Even though they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, by what authority? We want to know the truth of this matter. At the end of the day, their starting point is not the absolute truth. What they want is power and popularity. Those are the things that they're guarding. Those are the things they're preserving. They're not worried really about where his authority comes from. They're worried about losing their authority. And so Jesus exposes their starting point. He says, actually, you're, you're asking about authority, but what you really are concerned with is your own power and your own popularity. And so the question comes to us, what is your starting point? When it comes to the claim of Jesus Christ, and everybody has a starting point, what is your starting point? What are you trying to preserve? What are you trying to guard above all else? Is it the case that when you come, you come with this pure desire to know the truth, to wrestle with, is Jesus the Christ? Is He the Son of God? Is that purely how you're coming? Or are you coming with different experiences? Maybe trying to preserve certain sins in your life. Maybe trying to preserve this uh, a cultural acceptance. What, what is your starting point? Is it really a search for the truth? Or what are you guarding? I know that many of you have heard this, this phrase before, uh, deconstructing my faith. It's very popular right now. You can listen to podcast after podcast. And uh, what it refers to is people who are grown up in evangelical context, maybe in a megachurch somewhere, and they have this, this experience of deconstructing their faith. And you can find story after story of, of people doing this. And it, what it ends up following is this kind of predictable format that almost looks like a conversion story away from Christianity. People will say, you know, you know how a conversion story works. If we were to have a testimony this morning, I once was lost, but now I'm found, right? I once lived outside of God's rule, and now I submitted and I gave my life to Christ. Well, it's almost like a flip. It's like uh, a, a deconstruction story it starts with, I once was a Christian, and now I realize that the truth claims are all over the place, and that it's not backed by science, and all these things. And so now I know the truth. And so many people, including myself, have become referring to these not as deconstruction stories, but as deconversions or converting away from the faith. The most recent one was a few weeks ago. 
two guys named Rhett and Link. Maybe some of you have seen them before. They are YouTube sensations. Uh, they have a channel, YouTube channel called uh, My Mythical or Good Mythical Morning, uh, and it's it's an amazingly funny uh, YouTube show. They're two comedians. They do this basically this daily show, and they have a podcast called Ear Biscuits, <laughs> also amazing. Um, and it's it's funny. It's kind of youth groupy. You know, they're, they're like judging like different hot dogs, uh, like what's who has the best fast food hot dog, uh, th these kinds of things. And so they're comedians, and it will not surprise anyone if they watch their show to realize that they have a background in a campus ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ. And they weren't, once were on staff, and they've started this YouTube thing, and now they're full-time YouTubers, and they moved to L.A. And now, just a couple weeks ago, they put, present their stories of deconstructing their faith. And so they released these episodes on their podcast, even though their podcast had nothing to do with faith or religion. And basically about four hours, they, they both gave their testimonies um, of, and I call it testimony on purpose, of deconversion. And uh, I listened to all of it this week, <laughs> by the way. Um, and so they're calm, they don't bash Christians. Um, and so in many ways, it's the least abrasive deconversion story I've, I've heard. And yet... What it boils down to is a lot of the same recycled stuff that we hear all the time. They're having these questions about science and faith. They have friends who don't believe, and so they realize that other people are decent people, and they're, but they're not Christians, and so how can that be? And their views on sexuality and gender changing, and that the growing confidence that God wouldn't do X, Y, or Z to people. And what becomes obvious is that their starting point has shifted. What is their starting point? What are they trying to preserve? It's shifted to what? They were reading one set of books, and then they started reading another set of books, and then they realized all those other books were not accurate anymore. And they had this one set of friends, these Christian friends, where they lived in South Carolina, and then they moved to L.A., and now they have a new set of friends. And now they have a different approach to the truth. The point is this. What is your starting point? Doesn't that make all the difference? Everyone has a starting point. I'm not saying this morning that Christianity doesn't have a starting point. It begins with faith, a step of faith towards Jesus Christ, bowing the knee to His authority. It comes as a first principle. What is your starting point? And if your starting point is not Jesus Christ, then why do you have the starting point that you do? What are you preserving? What are you guarding? What do you really want to be true above all else? They say in the podcast that they just want to follow the truth wherever it leads. But that gives them a mistaken assumption that like, truth is just like laying around there for us, right in front of us, and then everybody just walks by and decides whether they want to accept the truth or not. That's not the way it works. They chose a different starting point and then believed a different truth. And I understand it. I really do. I understand it. But the question is for us this morning, when we evaluate the claims of Jesus Christ, what is your starting point? Because we have a starting point as well. The starting point of the Sanhedrin was power and popularity. And then Jesus had to fit into that. What is our starting point? It's, it's good to explore. It's good to think about these things. 
but you have to take something on authority. Leslie Newbegin is a, uh, he's a thinker from earlier this century in the 1900s, and he said this. He's a great missionary, great th- uh, mind. He said this, a teacher of mathematics who has tried to teach her pupils the elements of geometry will not be content until the pupil can see for himself or herself that it is true that three angles of every triangle add up to 180 degrees. The teacher will not be content if the child simply accepts it on her authority and when questioned by someone who does not understand can only say, my teacher says so. And yet, the child will certainly not reach the point of understanding, this is key, the child will certainly not reach the point of understanding without first accepting the authority of the teacher. We do not expect every fresh generation of school children to discover the whole of Euclid by the unaided exercise of native curiosity. Do you understand what he's saying? Of course, you need to, in a sense, deconstruct. You need to think about why you believe what you believe, but you must take something on authority. That has to be a starting point. Otherwise, you're lost. What is your starting point? First question. Second question. What is your status? What is your status? Jesus then moves into a parable that he tells about these authorities. And it's so interesting, the irony, because these leaders were in the temple, which is supposed to be their position of authority. That's the source of their authority. They're temple guardians. And they come into the temple and they question the Lord of the temple, who's just asserted his authority over the temple by driving out those who don't belong there. And then Jesus turns on them and requires something of them, showing them, hey, you think that you, your status is to be guardians of this temple, but I'm the Lord of the temple. And so he says to them, point blank, you've got to answer me. Answer me my question before I answer you yours. I will not answer you first. Because you believe that you're on your turf, but you're not. You're on my turf. And then he tells this story to this effect about whose turf they're on, which is starts in verse 1 of chapter 12. He began to, tell, to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And so he tells the story that there's, own, there's an owner and there's tenants. There are people who lease the land. And he's, what he's saying, of course, is that you are the tenants. This is not your place. Your status is not landowner. Your status is temporary tenants. And so then he tells the story that the season arrives for the harvest, and the man sends servants to collect the harvest, but they beat the servants, and then they shame another servant, and then they start to kill all the servants that are sent to them. And finally, he sends his beloved son, and they believe if we kill the son, then the inheritance will be ours. There'll be no one else to take this from us. All the authority will come to us. That's not, of course, we're not told exactly how it plays out, but it's implied here that the owner will then come and take back control. And it's interesting that the authorities here in this passage know that Jesus is talking about them. They know he's on to us. And so they want to arrest him. That's an interesting response to being just exposed. 
But it is what they want, because they want above all else to keep their power and their popularity. But what he's saying to them is this. You believe that you're owners, but you're tenants. That's your status. This vineyard is not yours. This is not your creation. You are temporary leaders. We talked about this a little bit last week, talking about the triumphal entry when Jesus comes in and we ask the question, is it the case that you are the protagonist of a story of your own? Or is it the case that you are a minor but important character in a narrative that is not your own? And we said it's the second one. That he is the king. And it's the same point here that he's making to them. This world is God's vineyard. It's his creation. It's his place of ownership. And yet what we want to do is we want to say, I am the authority. I want this to be true for me. What's your starting point, but also what's your status? Do you tend to think that your life is your own? That you control things? That you are the master of your fate? To return again to our buddies Rhett and Link who gave their deconversion stories. They are becoming authorities now, making themselves authorities of agnosticism. They are now an authority. Now they would deny that. They say on the podcast, um, you know, we're not trying to convince anyone of this. We are simply sharing our story and let the chips fall where they may. We're just going to share this story and we don't, we don't care if you believe it or not. But I'm going I'm to call them out on that. I don't think that's true at all. That's like me saying, I'm just going to preach a sermon this morning, and I don't care if you believe it or not. It's not. That's not the way it works. They have a platform. Of course they're trying to do that. They just released four hours of content on this topic. And it's interesting the way that the authority has spread, because Rhett, one of the guys, has, he's, got, he's kind of more the brainiac of the two. He's done all the reading. And, um, and he's the one that started with his doubts. And Link didn't have any doubts. And yet Rhett came to him and Kind of slowly, as he talked to him, he didn't try to convince him, he says, but slowly Link was not a Christian anymore. And then their wives were crying at the beginning of this, wondering how it is that their husbands lost their faith. Well, guess what? Their wives have now rejected Jesus. This is the way it happens. You can say, I'm not an authority all you want, but when you move into your spheres of influence, you, be, you assert that authority by the way that you speak. And now they're saying that this will become a permanent part of the Ear Biscuits podcast. That we're going to talk about stories of deconstruction. We're going to talk about different ways of expressing faith. So, of course, they're becoming authorities. But from a scriptural standpoint, they're not. And none of us are. They're tenants in a vineyard that they did not create. And so are we. All of us are. And so we can start to believe that we have a certain amount of authority over things. But it's not the case. And it is the case that every false authority will be exposed one day. And that every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. This is what we believe. This is part of that exclusive claim that's written on the wall this morning that we can reject or believe. But we believe that every false authority will be exposed and every knee will bow to Jesus Christ alone. What is your status? Third question. What is your cornerstone? Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, 
in verse 10, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He quotes from this psalm and says, this is what it's like. I'm a stone. The stone that the builders rejected. Because clearly Jesus is the son who comes and is killed by the tenants. He's the stone that the builders rejected. It should not shock us that people reject Jesus. He said that they would. They always have. They are right now, and people will reject Jesus. This stone that comes, presents itself. Hey, is this going to be part of the building of your life? And there's tons of people who will look at Jesus Christ and say, that's a nice stone. That's a pretty stone. It should work in this mosaic of stones that I have. And he can be part of He can be part of the house of my faith. And there are others who will say, I don't like this rock at all. And they'll reject him from any part of their building. But the Christian claim is this, of course. He is to neither be rejected nor placed in the structure of other things. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the, the stone on which everything else is built. And that's why I return to the claim that's written on the wall this morning. Jesus alone has the authority to require us to build our entire lives on him. We can state that claim. And you can immediately position yourself against it or underneath it. But I want to tell you why. Why he is the cornerstone. Why should you believe the claim? that we're talking about this morning. What gives him authority? Well, what gives anyone authority? You think about authority, it comes in a couple of different varieties. Authority can be by birthright, or it can be by influence, right? Who has authority? Think about kings or leaders, military leaders. It's maybe you're born into it. Maybe you become the king and you have this authority that is yours by birthright. It's granted to you. But there's another kind of authority. We know this. Not not everybody that is placed on a throne has the most power. So there's this idea of influence. It's who who leads people well. Where do people want, want to follow? And so authority can be granted or it can be earned. And I think that the reason why you should accept the claim of Jesus Christ this morning is because his authority is both granted and earned. It is both granted and earned. We've already talked about that it is granted. He is the son of the vineyard maker. He is the creator himself. He was with God in creation. And so we're told that this son has the rightful inheritance to the vineyard. This is his place. It is granted to him. And in a sense, that would just be enough. That would be true. It's true this morning that we live in the world that God created and that we are tenants on his property. That's just true. Scripture tells us that. But it's also true that Jesus does not assert that claim as the only reason why you should just follow his authority. In this story, we're not told very much about the son that comes 
to the tenants. We're just told that the Father sends him, which is true. In the other scriptures, we see a bigger picture of this son. It wasn't just that the Father sent the son to the tenants. Of course, it's true that he came willingly. And how did he come? Did he come with his granted authority? Did he come saying, this is mine by right? This is mine, bow to me. He does not do that. He comes as an infant. He comes humbly. Philippians tells us he didn't regard equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't say, I'm going to assert this authority. I'm not going to lean on this. I'm going to choose a different way to present my authority. And so he emptied himself. He went to the cross and he died for the tenants who killed him so that they could have access to the vineyard themselves, so that they could share in the inheritance that is his by right. So that we could be in the vineyard forever with him. And so the authority that Jesus wields is both granted and earned. And so we must say that he has the right of our whole lives. By what authority do you do these things? By every authority is the answer. By every authority. What do you follow? What is your cornerstone? If it's not Jesus Christ, what is it? As we close today, we return one more time to the story I've been talking about, Rhett and Link. They asked that question in their podcast. Now that we don't follow Jesus, what do we do? Where do we look for truth? How do we understand our lives? And they say, basically, we don't know. And in a sense, they're delighting in it. They say, I've lost my appetite. This is a direct quote. I've lost my appetite for certainty. And so I feel adrift in a sea of uncertainty. A sea of curiosity. And I find that metaphor that he uses both heartbreaking and very ironic. (laughs) Adrift in a sea of uncertainty. There's another word for that that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Shipwrecked. Shipwrecked where he warns Timothy, do not be on guard, do not make shipwreck of your faith. Adrift in a sea of uncertainty. What's the opposite that we can come to? We can see, rather than being adrift, we have the anchor. It's Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone to switch the metaphor. He's the anchor. And having an anchor doesn't mean that you won't have storms. It guarantees storms. It's there for the storms. And so, being a Christian doesn't mean that you don't wonder sometimes. It doesn't mean that you don't have doubts or struggles. That you won't have situations where you feel like you're out of your league and you need help. Of course those things will happen. Life on a sea guarantees that. But it means that you will stay upright and not shipwrecked during those things those times, because you're not trusting in your own authority where you would be adrift. You're saying, this is my anchor. This is my cornerstone. It's Jesus Christ. And I don't fully understand everything that he does or says, but I'm seeking to understand it because he has the authority over my life. Let's pray.